the news. <laughs> uh, my name is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. Hey y'all, I'm Brittany Pacnet at Miss Peck Yeti on all social media. I'm DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. Hey everybody, this is Clint. I'm so sorry I can't be there and I'm bummed to miss out on what I know is going to be a great, phenomenal, amazing show. Me, my wife, and baby Jay are currently expecting the newest addition to our family any day now, so I couldn't risk being out of town. I hope you understand. I'm grateful to all of you for coming out to the show and for the work you do in helping us try to build a better world. Shout out especially to the parents in the audience. Whoop, whoop. Holding it down. I see you out here after the sun goes down, getting wild, doing your thing. Special shout out to y'all. Have a great show, y'all. Peace. See you next time. <laughs> you are the... Aye, aye, aye. Yes. 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 Aye, yes. Aye, aye. He's yes. always here in spirit. We love you, Clint, wherever you are. Clinton, Ariel, and Baby J. Now, when we think about 2020, we all know that we got to win, that like we cannot have four years of this again. Yes, you can clap for that. Yes, got to yes. win. Um, <laughs> Not losing in 2020, worth clapping for. Now, the other thing that is fun that I'll just say is that we rarely talk about any of these issues. We are all friends, but we rarely talk about these outside of the show because we want to make sure they're fresh. Now, I'm going to ask all of us to talk about the candidates. I wrote them down because there's so many people running already. Um, but I want to make sure I get, I want to figure out what you, what we all have to say about the candidates. So let's start I hope with- this is um, not like talking about candidates on Twitter because it's just going to be Yeah, this is going to be a problem. I know. Let's start with uh, Buttigieg. Buttigieg. That's his name. Pete Buttigieg? Pete yeah. Buttigieg. So we should all figure out how to pronounce his name. Thought number one. Yeah, I, th um, I think it's Buttigieg. <laughs> the mayor of South Bend, right? South Bend, Indiana. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and openly gay, which is important. And openly gay, yes. Um, listen, I am always here for a long shot, and I appreciate his courage. He's really good at the shade. I'm always here for a long <laughs> no, shot. No, it wasn't it's shade. Good. That it was good. I got to use wait it. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm always that here for a long shot. Shade. DeRay always calls me unintentionally shady, and I really was not being you shady. You did that with a smile. I'm always here for okay, a long shot. Okay, look. <laughs> it wasn't shade. Like, come on. It's not okay, necessarily a likely scenario. Go here for the long shot. My point is, I'm saying that, that the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, while he may be a great guy, it's that, like, there's a big jump from that to the presidency, and I actually respect the level of courage that it takes to put your name. I'm being serious. Oh, my gosh. I'm being serious. Okay. That was like three levels of shade. <laughs> Thank you. She says I'm picking on her. I'm it like, oh, that was shady. Mm -hmm. This is sexist. I don't know how. I'm going to find a way. Sam. I hope to hear more about him and his plans. Like, he's a younger candidate. I like that. I don't know much about South Bend, Indiana. Like, I, don't, I haven't been there. I don't know how he's managed that situation. This all sounds shady, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> he's running. It's contagious. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know much about him, to be honest. I, but I'm, I'm willing to give him a chance yeah. and, 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 and learn, because I think we need more, uh, more candidates, particularly younger candidates, who are willing to shake things up. Absolutely. I interviewed uh, Pete when he was running for the DNC role, and I liked him then. I, you know, he does have an interesting way to talk about South Bend. I think he did some cool things in South Bend. I don't know how representative South Bend is of 
a lot of places, but you know, that'd be a question. But interested to see how, what he does with the policy stuff. Let's go to Castro. I feel the same way um, as sometimes I have, I have questions. I just, like, I, for so many of them, I need to know more. And I have questions around his work uh, with, with public housing. So that's going to be where my focus goes in terms of finding out more about his platform. Like what you've heard that he wasn't great on public y- housing? Yeah, his work. In the, I just, I just want to, I don't think I was paying enough attention while he was working in that space to know exactly what his legacy is there. And so I just, I have questions. I mean, I think he has a, a powerful story. I think that, you know, I remember that speech was at the Democratic Convention, which was sort of like an Obama-like convention speech, um, which I thought was really powerful. He's the son of a Chicana rights activist, which I think is really, really important to helping to inform his perspective. So, yeah, I want to learn more about him. I'm definitely excited to, to hear. I, I mean, I don't know much about, you know, his time at HUD, and I think that's something that we definitely need to you know, be able to hold him accountable for anything that, that may have been, you know, a challenge or an issue there. He has um, to be better than Carson. <laughs> <laughs> because that was... Yes. I think I don't know much about Castro. I like him. I used to get him and his brother confused, and I had to work on that. That's terrible. And it's true, though. I mean, uh, y'all did, too. They I know are that, twins. Thank you. Like, thank, it's you not, thank you. I know that they're twins. Us, like, thank you. They are if twins. If he keeps calling me shady, I got to find something <laughs> wrong with I'd be like, I'm, you know, I would see them at events and be like, hey, just like not say too much because it's like I don't remember, you know. Um, okay, let's go to our favorite coffee connoisseur, Howard Schultz. Boo! That's my only thought about him, boo. I just want him to like, get out of the way, bro. Like, I just am... <laughs> that would be a great so shirt. Get out of the get way, bro. It's great. This is what people should wear to his rallies and town halls. I just feel like it is the epitome of caucasity. <laughs> white male caucasity specifically. To put yourself in something that ain't got nothing to do with you. You are a billionaire. You're going to be good either way. If you weren't running, you'd be donating to both candidates, most likely. So, like, let's just not pretend like your struggle is the struggle of the everyday American. He really got on TV. He grew up in the projects. He, child. (laughs) He said, said, I grew up in the projects, baby. He said, I think this was at Purdue. He said, "Um, you know, no one wants to see Trump out of office more than me. And I was like, (laughs) I feel like. People uh, trying for asylum at the border and black people and gay people and women, like literally everybody but white male billionaires probably want Trump out of office more than you, Howard right, Schultz. Right, 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 right. I want him to step aside. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's gotten so much airtime with no substance at all, right? Like, I still cannot name one thing that he actually supports. I can name what he opposes, everything that Democrats are for. Um, But I can't (laughs) name one thing that he actually supports, so I don't know why, I mean, I know why, but he really shouldn't be getting any attention at all, so I'm hopeful that he will uh, go away as quickly as possible so we can have real conversations about real issues. I do have a question, though, about the Starbucks food. Like, why is the food so bad at Starbucks? I'm interested <laughs> Those are in... Those questions he needs to get. Yeah, you know, like, like, if he really wants to like, be in the lot, lot, lot of he start money, asking questions bagel about Starbucks. never tastes like anything. <laughs> the bagel is always really bland. Is that your opinion about his candidacy, during? <laughs> yeah, I don't... Like, he hasn't really said much about the issues besides, That's true. like... The way that you run a campaign and a presidency, you know, that is reflective of how you've run your businesses, right? And the only platform we have is what his coffee's tastes like and what his food tastes like. Bad. Um, Okay, (laughs) here we go. Kirsten Gillibrand. You know, I think she could be the sleeper. 
I um, have spent a little bit of time with her, and I was on stage and asked her a question about intersectionality, and she, specifically around the work that white women need to do to support and be accomplices to women of color, and she didn't shy away from it, which at the very least earned my respect. So I'm interested to not only learn more about her, but hear the kind of platform that she's crafting, and I'm really curious as to who will be informing it. No, same thing. I, I mean, I think she could very well be the candidate. So far in the campaign, she's conducted in a way that hasn't been sort of marred by unforced errors, which I think is positive and like at minimum should be what we expect. And, you know, I think she's taken steps early on to engage with uh, issues that are sort of beyond what she's comfortable with, sort of out of her comfort zone, um, engaging with issues of racial inequity um, in an authentic way that, that makes me feel like she's serious about actually um, working on this with us. So. You know, we had uh, Kirsten on the pod, and because of an episode of the pod, she actually introduced a bill around postal banking because she heard it on the pod, which we always respect, and like that was dope. Uh, if, there's, if you know much about her record, she was not very pro immigration things when she was in uh, the state Senate or when she was an elected official in New York before she was in the, the United States Congress. Uh, and we asked her about that in the pod and like she was working through that and like that, um, it was promising the way she processed that. So I am interested. I agree with you that like she hasn't made a lot of unforced errors, which is a good thing. I worry, if there's anything I worry about with Gillibrand, it's like I, she might just not catch on with the wave because the news cycle is just it's not even 24 hours. It's like every hour now. And like, she could just not pick up the wave, which wouldn't necessarily be her fault as much as like, it's just hard to break through these days. Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> woo! <laughs> a single woo. There was a woo! <laughs> certainly some unforced errors in the beginning of this thing, but... Major. Um, <laughs> but, but I think we'll push forward the conversation on everything from consumer protection to the economy in a way that will, I think, set a bar for the rest of the field that's necessary. Yeah, I mean, she's been strong on holding sort of Wall Street accountable. She has a demonstrated track record of doing that, which I think we desperately need. So I think that's good. That's that's positive. On the other hand, you know, the unforced errors, identifying with or claiming, you know, Native American heritage. ancestry, heritage. She did, however, recently reach out and she spoke at um, an indigenous conference, which was good and seemed like she had a, a different kind of reception there. So, so I'll defer to folks in the indigenous community with how they feel about her and, and respect that. But ultimately, I think she has to earn back that trust. And to the extent that she can do that, um, then it'll open space for her to, to take on some of these broader issues. I think that, you know, when I think about all of the candidates, I think that they will, on the left, will coalesce around criminal justice and race. I think that they will all sort of say the same thing in the end. I think that healthcare, they'll all, everybody will be Medicare for all or some version of it. They might name it something different, but I think they will. I think the two buckets that they will differ on dramatically will be what is our role in the world? I think that the candidates will be really different about like Palestine, Israel, like just what is our role in the Middle East? Like, I think that will be a big differentiator. And then what do we do about extreme wealth? I think will be the other thing that candidates it's really different on and I think that Warren like you said well she will be like the she will be the goalpost for like what do we do with extreme wealth I think that she will sort of force everybody to be way more to the left than they would naturally be about like what is the role of a billionaire in the economy like that sort of stuff and I'm interested in that I do worry about one a little bit with like her ability to be perceived as 
as knowledgeable about things that aren't about the financial industry. You know, like she knows that so well. So when you hear her talk about other things, you're like, oh, I don't know if you just learned that yesterday or like, do you, you're like, you, it's like, I don't really know. But like when she talks about banks, you're like that. Yes. You're like, yeah, I just believe it. You know? Um, okay. Here we go with the thoughts on Klobuchar real quick. I used to live in Minnesota and it is the most Minnesotan thing to give that announcement in the blizzard, you know, like it's like so Minnesotan. Um, I, I, I still need to know a lot more besides snowstorms. <laughs> She's obviously tough. She's out in the snow because <laughs> let me tell you, like I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and now I live in New York and like I can't stand like when it's 40 degrees, it's super cold to me. And people are just going outside like it's no big deal. It was like negative five degrees at some point of this past month. So her being in the blizzard was a sign of toughness for us people who are afraid of the cold. Sam Singagwe <laughs> can stand up against white supremacy, not, not the cold. Not the cold. No, no. Booker. He's a friend, right? Like we should, we should acknowledge that. You know what? I really want to see bring it Corey throughout this race. Like I want to see the Corey that we saw during the Kavanaugh hearings because there is a, an intensity that I know that he has that is necessary for this moment that I think gives people permission to acknowledge how angry they are, how frustrated they are, how much is at risk. And I'm hoping that that's like who we see throughout this process. I think unforced errors, right? We've seen, um, We've seen him make some unforced errors. I think they asked him, is Donald Trump a racist? And he was like, oh, I don't know what's in his heart. And I'm like, yes, you do. <laughs> like, you, like, have you not been paying attention? Like, we know what's in his heart. So I think he's got to find a different way of answering that question, and that has to change. On the other hand, I think that he has actually proposed some pretty strong and powerful policies. Um, he recently proposed a baby bonds program that you know, is projected to cut the racial wealth gap between young black and young white adults from a 16 to one gap to a 1.4 to one gap, which is like a dramatic difference. Mm-hmm. So that's like real change, right? And, and, and is within his means, right? It's about, uh, I think it's $85 billion a year to fund it. So it's like not so much money that you wouldn't be able to just raise taxes on the wealthy to pay for it. Um, <laughs> so I think the more that he can double down on policy and then, you know, as you said, Brittany, double down on sort of the being able to seize this moment and have the energy and the passion to go after all of these issues that need to be gone after, I think then he can actually seize this. I do agree about some unforced errors. I also want to see bring it, Corey. I think what is promising for him is that because he's been in the public space for so long, like all the... It's like we sort of know the hit pieces that are coming. It's like there's going to be a hit piece about public education. We know there'll be something about the pharmaceutical industry. Like there'll be that thing will sort of come up again. But there's really not a whole lot to uncover about Corey. Like it's sort of like all out there. And I think that is actually a good thing for him in the long run uh, with the way the news cycle is going to go. I also think that he is quietly pushed behind the scenes to get some of the legislation that we love to be a little bit better. And I think that they haven't led with those stories. But I think about the baby bonds thing got introduced before. He, you know, like he was ta- he's been talking about these things for a long time. The question will be, can he weave that narrative so people believe it? Because some people think that Corey is like corny and a little hokey. And the thing is, is that like, and we know him, he actually is like, that is who he, he is he's like really that. like, everybody love one another. He really like, is. He really like it is, is you know, he just, it's not like a, it's not like that's what he does when he walks out and like puts on a suit. He really is like, hey, uh, he really is the guy who like, he really is a guy who's like, let me shovel your walkway. You know, if you remember him from the Twitter days when he was like shoveling people's driveways, like that is actually not a performance. Uh, and I think that people experience it as a performance sometimes. Okay. Last one is Kamala Harris. Um, so listen, we also know her, 
I just want to be upfront. So here's the thing. I appreciate the moment of legacy that we're in, right? Like I, I've been reading a lot of Shirley Chisholm's speech, speeches and so I understand and, and deeply respect the tradition in which Senator Harris comes. Sorry, Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman to run for president. Yeah, uh, applaud for that. Um, so I, and I'm not saying this as a caveat, right? Like I just, I wanna acknowledge that legacy because it matters deeply. Also, I understand why people have had a lot of questions. And I don't think that any presidential candidate should be above criticism. Like, we simply cannot afford that. I just want the criticism to be accurate. And I want it to be based in truth. And I think that there are criticisms of her record as a prosecutor and her record in criminal justice. And the way that we have been talking about it has been truthful. And I think that, as, as Sam can probably say, there are some things that are actually not all that accurate. And I also think that Jamel Hill wrote a really great article for The Atlantic about this. None of that has to do with her blackness, right? And I want us to get away from this thing where because of who you're married to or the fact that you might be multiracial, that that has to be a conversation. If you want to talk about what you're going to do for black people, that's a different conversation than trying to undermine who somebody is and who they've been their whole lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of unforced errors, which I think... I'm, I think she's... Even this unforced errors, that should be <laughs> that's your t-shirt. That should be the name like, of the episode. Right. Unforced, unforced errors. Um, I think her campaign needs to do a better job of explaining her record. She needs to do a better job of explaining her record, first of all, but her campaign also needs to be focused on that. I think in this moment, this is sort of a make or break moment where she could be a front runner, right? Or a lot of these questions could continue to linger and create a narrative around her that's difficult to overcome, sort of like what we saw in 2016. I want to know the answer to those questions. A lot of people want to know the answer to those questions about her record as a prosecutor, and I want to give her the space to answer that, but it does need to be answered, right? And there's an urgency around that because these things have political costs, and you know we have to win in 2020. Um, so I hope that her and her team can get around to, to doing that as quickly as possible and in a really strong way because I want to support her, but I, I, I need to know how her opinions have changed. So I think she just has to explain those and set the record straight as quickly as possible. And I think the point that you made about how she's evolved, right, and what that would look like in the future, that's really important to be crystal clear about. And I think people would appreciate being like, I believe this and now I believe this and here's how I've grown. That's one of the things that I appreciated about Gillibrand. It was like, hey, Gillibrand, you were against a whole sort of things like IDs for people who didn't have like all their papers and you were against a whole lot of things and like what made you grow and she was able to explain it. I think that with Kamala, what's what I worry about a little bit is not only does she need to explain the record for people, is that her surrogates are actually starting to be a little quieter because they don't have answers either. And like that, I think, is going to be like a thing where like you need people to fight the battle for you. But because like they don't know, like it's like, what do you, you know, she just went, did that interview that said she smoked weed. And then people are like, well, you locked up all those people for smoking weed. How do those things meld? And like there is, it's like people don't know how to like navigate that on her behalf. And I think that that is a real challenge. I also am mindful, and this is where I think it's different a little bit between her and Corey around the, the media, is that because she is more recently a national figure like this, I do think she's in like the honeymoon phase around some of the coverage like people have been definitely cutting at her and stuff like that but like 
it's there's still so much of her life we haven't seen covered. So I think there'll be a couple more months of profiles and like what's the house she grew up in. Like we'll get that, and then they will run out of all those cool stories, and it'll just be intense stuff. And I think that her delaying talking about some of the record is going to make the intense stuff like really intense in a way that is not going to help her in the end. But it is cool to see so many people. I mean, like all the people that came out to her rallies and stuff like that. Like that is dope. We're gonna go to the news in a second, but I wanted to know if you had any thoughts around uh, Bernie. I don't have much. I mean, I appreciate the way that he contributed to a broader conversation about Medicare for all. I think that that's powerful. That's, that matters, right? It's a really important policy, and now that's become sort of the standard in the party. So I think we can give credit where credit's due, but also recognize there were a lot of problems with the way that he and, and his campaign operated in 2016 with some of the things that he said, particularly with regard to race. And the ways in which he allowed his supporters to yes. engage with people that look yes. like us. Yes, yeah. yes, all of those things. And so, you know, again, we don't have answers for that either. So, yeah, I mean, I'll leave it open, but I'm not excited about it. So interesting is, is your answer to... No, I'm forced there. We did meet with Bernie during the 2016 elections, and it was a fascinating meeting. I will say, I think that... Um, <laughs> That wasn't even, that was not me trying to be shady. Is that- No, they were laughing in my face. <laughs> okay, I was like, that wasn't me. It was fascinating. Is that Bernie was really good at the what and sort of struggle with the how. Uh, Hillary was really good at the how and sort of struggle with the what for people. That like, Bernie was like, you know what? Free everybody from jail. I'm gonna free a million people. And then people were like, well, there aren't a million people in federal prison. He's like, okay. But you're like, <laughs> you're like, that is a little funny. You know, like it was like, what is going on? Um, so, so if he doesn't, if he does run, I hope that like the how is like a little bit tighter this time. Uh, and I do think that like you're right that without him, the healthcare conversation would not be where it is. And like that is not like in, in pushing it so far to the left around Medicare for all. And I think that is huge. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. So I want to talk about Twenty One Savage. For those of you who have not been following this story, 21 Savage is a rapper. He was born in the UK, which a lot of people didn't know until the last few weeks, because he was picked up by ICE. So what we found out is that 21 Savage has been in the United States, in Atlanta primarily, since the age of seven. And then when he was a child, his visa expired. Since that time, he has been engaging in the music industry, rapping, and a lot of people thought that he had been born here. Again, we found out that he was not. Um, so he was arrested and detained, charged with multiple things, including a charge called aggravated felony. Most recently, that charge was dropped. And for a lot of people who have been against this detainment, myself included, they feel like the dropping of this aggravated felony charge is proof positive that this actually was something that was trumped up, pun intended, by ICE. So we find now that he is out on bond and fighting this thing, but many people also believe that he was actually detained because he has been pretty vocal in speaking out against ICE and some of the other practices of this administration on national television and in his music, et cetera. It was interesting to see what happened, though, right after this made the news. One of the things that happened was that a lot of people said that he was fake, that he had been calling himself an African-American and that that was a lie. What his response was was like, look, I've been here since I was seven. This is the culture that I was raised in and I contribute to this culture. So that is what I feel I most identify with. The other thing that happened is that people were making jokes, right? Like everything was a meme about tea and crumpets and whatnot. And people weren't really grappling with just how serious this is. And I think that that's true for a couple of reasons. So here's why I wanted to bring 
this up. Number one, we have allowed the conversation on immigration in America to be created as a solely Latinx issue. Um, and we know that this administration wants to promote that idea because they want to promote the fear of brown people, that they're like running through your borders, they're running into your backyard, MS-13 is everywhere. That's all a lie. But on the other end of it, what has happened is we forget that there are Asian and Pacific Islander immigrants. We forget that there are folks from the Middle East. We forget that there are black people who immigrate to this country. And so I think because we haven't been having a well-rounded conversation about exactly what immigrants look like in all of the many places where they, from which they come, um, people were having trouble calculating how a black rapper that we all know to be from Atlanta could also be an immigrant. The second thing is that like categorization is hard, right? So I'm not here to prescribe a particular label to anybody, but I know that at my job, we grappled with whether or not we wanted to call one of our initiatives an African-American initiative or a black initiative. Ultimately, we decided on black because we wanted to choose the closest thing that we had that could be welcoming of everyone from the diaspora. So we recognized that there were Afro-Latinx people in our mix, that there are Afro-Caribbeans in our mix, that there were immigrants in our mix, that there were African-American descendants of slaves in our mix. We have to be really careful about how much we ascribe to a particular label or how much we tell people this label doesn't apply to you, right? Here's the third thing that I think is really important. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading on the 14th Amendment, which is the one a lot of people can explain. I told somebody I was reading on it, and they were like, which one's the 14th? And I was like, exactly. 14th Amendment has to do with equal protection, but it also has to do with citizenship. Because if you will remember, at a certain point in time, black folks were three-fifths of a person. And that wasn't because people were trying to make some kind of incremental you know, civil rights <laughs> uh, creation. It was because the South wanted more population for them to be able to count uh, more seats in Congress. So from three-fifths of a person to the Dred Scott decision all the way to the 14th Amendment, we actually, as, as black people born here, had to have an affirmative amendment in language in the Constitution to say that, yes, we too are citizens. And so we have to be thoughtful and careful about the fact that black citizenship in this country has never and is still, in a lot of ways, not actually a guarantee. And we have to ask ourselves if second-class citizenship is citizenship at all. We think about mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow, all of the black folks who come out of the carceral system and still can't vote and still can't access jobs and good housing. Is that citizenship at all as it's supposed to be guaranteed by the 14th Amendment? I think that the 21 Savage situation brings all of those things to mind for me. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. Boom. So in preparation for this, I looked up a couple of statistics. And shock, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> um, so within the black population in the United States, about 10% are foreign born, so immigrants from another country. Another 10% are folks who are the children of immigrants, right? Uh, myself included. My dad was born in Tanzania uh, under colonial rule and came to this country uh, at the age of 27. So we're talking about one in five black people are immigrants or the children of immigrants, and that includes uh, 619,000 undocumented black people. About as many black people are undocumented in this country as the total black population in Philadelphia. Mm. So, Go ahead, Sam. You know, so I learned something every week. I'm like, damn, what am I going to say? Sam. So when I we feel talk like about every this, time people listen to Sam talk, it's like that meme from The Wire where he was like, oh. <laughs> 
I'm like, God, wow. yeah, I need to take notes. Okay, so, keep going, Pastor. So, so this is a huge population. Like, this isn't just tangentially impacting the black population. Like, this is a large proportion of people who are directly impacted by Trump's immigration policies and are disproportionately impacted compared to other immigrants. So when you look at the statistics on who ICE is arresting and detaining and deporting, 20% of those under deportation proceedings uh, for criminal uh, offenses are black, and 7% of the immigrant population, the non-citizen population, uh, is black, right? So 7% of the non-citizen population, 20% of those in deportation proceedings. And that is because we are more likely to be stopped and searched and arrested and incarcerated uh, and hit with a conviction that then makes it more likely that you will get then picked up by ICE uh, and deported. So all of those things impact us, right? It's important to be intersectional in how we think about this um, because in many ways at the intersection of blackness and being undocumented is sort of this place where you're at a, a heightened risk of all of those things happening to you. And we saw 21 Savage being one of 619,000 people in this country that this can happen to. Um, so, you know, we have to be not only cognizant of this, but um, recognize that this is just an issue that impacts, that impacts the black population in a way, at a scale that is just not, is missing from the public conversation. So I'm hopeful that this, this incident can spark some of that conversation. Yeah. How do we stop it? Great question. So yell out loud, how many people you think ICE detains every day? Like, what are your guesses? How many people are detained across the country by ICE every single day? 18,000, 18, 5,000, what? 30,000. So it's 44,000 people are detained every day by ICE, which is wild. This is up from about 33,000. So it's not necessarily new people, but it's like they always have 44,000 people in detention every single day which is wild. So people think about ICE as like this mythical thing across the country. It's like huge problem for a lot of people. If you watch the 21 Savage interview, he talks about how they literally were just like, we got Savage, never got read his rights because he's not a citizen. So they didn't necessarily had to read him his rights. And then he also was never told what he was charged with. He was just detained. So he, like you see him talk about this experience. And for a lot of people, it was the first time that they saw somebody who they sort of identify with or knew as a celebrity, like being impacted by this. Now, when we think about the both, what do we do about it? What is interesting, and Sam has talked about this before, is that ICE actually doesn't own enough property to detain as many people as they detain a day. So the question is, how do they detain so many people? Is that they actually rent out local prisons and jails. And we know the places that they, we know most of the places that they rent out. So what people have started to do around the country is actually get their city council to abolish the contracts that forces ICE to change their practices. So that is like one thing that's interesting. Thank God AOC is in Congress because she's sort of leading that, the abolish ICE. Like that is a good thing. Um, Another thing that is happening is that there are local jurisdictions that are refusing to cooperate with ICE because what's happening in some places is school systems and police departments are calling ICE on kids that they suspect are in MS-13. So there are school districts around the country where, where guidance counselors will call ICE. And remember, because ICE, you have very little rights if you're not a citizen, is that ICE will literally come and get kids out of school and just transport them, and they can do it. It actually isn't, just as a point of clarification, is that ICE doesn't do that. It's the Office of Refugee Resettlement that actually moves kids around, same homeland security. And Border Patrol is actually the single biggest police department in the country, which is like another thing that people don't think about. But when we think about the long-term effects of this, is like the, the long game for them 
is that the country is projected, was projected to be a majority minority in the next 15 or 20 years, is that the net effect of all the things that the Trump administration has done about immigration has delayed that by at least 10 years. And like you think about, you know, we often talk about what this administration is doing as like having an impact right now is dangerous, but like they are playing the long game. And that 10 year stat came out a while ago. That was like five, six months ago. Yeah. So like imagine what it is today with like the net effects of all of those things that like the long game is to make the country as white as possible for as long as possible, because the other thing that's happening with white people is that white people are actually having less kids than they were having before. And like the net effect of the immigration work is actually keeping the country wider. So when you think about what we do, it's like we can actually stop the contracts. We can actually work in Congress to make sure that we lower the quota or defund some of ICE, because remember that we actually didn't always have an apparatus that functioned like ICE and the country is fine. If El Chapo is saying he got the drugs here another way, then like, you know, he's like, y'all. He's like, I didn't even come in that yeah, way. He's I He's like, I had a tunnel. We had a plane. He was like, ain't nobody worried about the wall. It's like, I trust he was a, he might not be a good person. He was a businessman and he made a lot of money. So however he got the drugs across is what I believe. (laughs) He said El Chapo is not, he may be a lot of things, but he's not a liar. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. Um, So, so my news is about YouTube. One thing that's interesting is recently YouTube announced that they were changing their recommender algorithm for how they recommend new videos for you to see based on the videos that you just saw. This is a big issue because conspiracy theories thrive on YouTube. White supremacist content, all kinds of like flat earth conspiracies apparently, which like I don't, I still don't understand how people believe this. Like we, you know, we've been to space. There's like astronauts, there's like photos. You can see it on like Netflix. You can see the whole earth. It's a circle. Bottom line, YouTube, it can be a toxic environment for people who sort of get sent down this rabbit hole of once they see, you know, one piece of news, if anything, basically that's conservative, then the next piece of news is usually like Alex Jones or something. Then the next piece of news is like, I don't know, like some neo-Nazi. And that's the recommender algorithm that they designed intentionally because it maximizes ad revenue for YouTube. Because the longer that they can keep you on the platform, the more ads you watch and the more money they make. So that's the system. And they're actually starting to change that system, recognizing that that system is incredibly harmful to society. Um, So baby steps, they announced that they are now uh, changing the algorithm so that it will no longer recommend videos that are uh, what they call medical conspiracies, these like miracle cure things, which uh, like is a whole world of YouTube that I have no experience with. But they're also addressing things like Holocaust denialism. They're addressing things like conspiracy theories like Pizzagate and like all of these other theories and white supremacist content. So this is a start, but it makes me think a lot about how these algorithms and how these systems are designed. And what would it mean not only if we weren't thinking about, you know, not recommending the worst content, but we were thinking about why don't we actually recommend things that can make people like a better person or like not like so ignorant about these issues. So I'm hopeful that continued pressure on Google will force them to continue to update and improve this algorithm over time as they scale it up um, so that we're actually educating people, creating a more informed population instead of sending people down this rabbit hole where they get more and more and more radicalized. And this is so important because, you know, a lot of the tech companies, when they're challenged on these kinds of things, it's not just Google or YouTube, it's, it's all of them. They claim neutrality. They're like, we can't take sides. We have to recognize 
all conversations. There are good people on both sides, right? Like maybe the other guy said that, but you get, you hear what I'm getting at. But the fact of the matter is, is that in cases of injustice, there is no such thing as neutral, right? Like you are either part of the problem or you are part of the solution and you cannot stand on the sidelines in this stuff, right? Dr. King talks about the fact that only light can drive out darkness. If you're not gonna be the light, then get out of the way. You know, we, we always ask ourselves, who radicalized you? When we meet the Dylan Roofs of the world, who radicalized you? Well, at this point, you don't even have to come in contact with radical white supremacists, with people who are deeply problematic to society. All you have to do is be able to log on. And YouTube previously was helping feed you the information that helps radicalize you. So I'm glad to, like you said, to see this, this baby step. But I just, I'm really frustrated with tech companies claiming neutrality when that is such an incredible danger. We, we met with, all of us were there, we met with Sheryl Sandberg, all of us were in the room, and one of the things that we said to her was, you know, what do we do about the private Instagram accounts that are white supremacists? They have 200,000 followers, but they're private, so your model is predicated on being able to report, but like you can't really report a private account. And what about the secret Facebook groups? And, da -da? and what she said to us, I'll never forget, is that she was like, oh, AI will fix it. And we were like, but AI is racist. And like... <laughs> And when, you know, like when are y'all developing like the AI algorithm to figure this stuff out? So like, we do think about all the people that are radicalized on the internet as like a real thing. What I wanted to add that I was fascinated by is that there's a 2017 study called Misinformation Lingers in Memory. And it's about the anti-vaxxers. Because you know, as I know, that measles, for instance, is up 50%, right. <laughs> measles is up 50%. So these researchers are trying to figure out like what to do, how do we like counteract the anti-vax? And what they found that I thought was fascinating was that this idea that repeating a vaccination conspiracy theory, even when trying to debunk it, makes people more likely to believe it. So they go through these three types of ways that you could possibly debunk. The first is called myth and fact. So like you say myth and fact. And what they show is that that, even doing like the myth and fact pattern, because you repeat the myth, it actually makes people more likely to still believe it and retrench, which I thought was like fascinating. The second was this idea of exposure to fear. So if you like say to parents, like, you know, if you don't get your kid uh, vaccinated, it'll lead to all these things, that the fear angle actually makes more people likely, people are more likely to believe the relationship, the false relationship between uh, anti-vaccinations and autism when you introduce fear. That's crazy. And then they do this thing called fact icon. So you have a fact and then like a little box that says yes or no. Uh, and that is the least problematic of the ways to debunk, but still, it still has a residue of making people believe. So even the best researchers like don't actually know yet how to counteract the harmful conspiracy theory information in a way that like leads to outcomes that we can measure, which I thought was fascinating. That like, I would have been somebody that's like, tell the myth, help people understand it. And they're like, literally, you just repeating the myth is actually making people believe it even more, even when you try to debunk it. And like, I had never thought about that. So wanted to bring that as like a don't have an answer, but was fascinated by it when you brought that up as your news. I mean, that's pretty much like the story of Trump's presidency is conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories. Then you have like the media repeating the conspiracy theories and like sometimes they'll fact check it, hopefully. But even then, it's still bad, still repeating right? It, yeah. So that's problematic. 
Saman is about, there have been recent calls uh, here to have the maximum sentence that people can get uh, be 20 years. So like worst thing that you do, you get 20 year sentence. And that is a model in some other countries. I just did a trip to Germany not too long ago and we did a tour of prisons in Germany. And in Germany, there's like a cutoff around 20, 15 years is like the maximum you can get. Same thing in Norway. And if you do something so heinous, when the 20 years are over, you'll come up for review and could get like five more years and five more years. And this idea that like what we know to be true, whether you like are pro jails or not, is that incarcerating people doesn't change their likelihood to commit crime like that just it doesn't do that. And we also know that people are less likely to commit crime as they age. So like people age out of crime, essentially. We know that to be true. And it is interesting to think about like, what do we do if we understand that there will always be conflict in communities and some people will need to be separated from some part of society given the conflict that like, there's some people who like murdering people and like, that doesn't seem like a healthy community behavior, right? That like, <laughs> we will need to figure out like, <laughs> so like for those people, we gotta figure out like what to do in a way that like, isn't putting you in a cage and isn't allowing you to kill people, right? So trying to figure that out, but like this idea that 116 year sentences actually don't make people better, doesn't like help. And we know the majority of people incarcerated actually do return to society. So like if they're gonna be your neighbor anyway, you actually want them to be the best neighbor that they can possibly be to you. So this is also in your interest as somebody who like believes in a strong community that like you have neighbors and people that your kids see and like, people that you're around. So I wanted to bring that here, trying to think about like, what would be a radical way to think about the issue of incarceration and the issue of like how to keep communities safe. And this is the constant challenge, right? That if it's just one thing or the other, that we don't actually talk about the difficulties, right? We don't talk about crimes like murder or rape, child molestation that are more difficult to parse through how we actually keep people safe. But one of the really important things that the op-ed brought up, which I thought was really great, is that whether or not this policy ever passes, and we acknowledge that it probably will be very difficult to actually see something like this pass, it forces a conversation on the purpose of incarceration. Because if we don't grapple with the purpose of incarceration, we can never actually figure this thing out. And so is it in the interest of public safety? Because if it's purely that, then the way that we're doing it is not working. Mass incarceration does not keep people patently safer. The second question is, is it actually about rehabilitating people? Because if that's the purpose, then we clearly aren't doing that well. We're clearly in a place where we are punishing people, locking people away, throwing away the key, and then throwing them away such that we give them no hope or opportunity of reentering society in a better and more full way. Or is the purpose simply punishment, right? That it is you do the crime and you are punished for it. I would guess that most people are probably ideally somewhere in between the three. Some people may be fully on the punishment side and that is part of the reason why we are where we are. But I do think that figuring out what our common understanding is of the purpose of incarceration is the most critical question I'm asking myself after reading this and how we force that conversation because if we don't have it, we cannot get this right. We think about capping sentences at 20 years, no matter sort of the severity of the crime. Um, this is one of those things where there's one of the widest gulfs between public opinion and the facts and the data that DeRay presented on this actually being a good policy that's positive for public safety. Um, according to a poll from Vox and Morning Consult uh, in 2016, uh, only 29% of registered voters said that they believe that people who were convicted of a violent crime and had a low risk of reoffending should get a lesser sentence than they're currently getting. Only 29% of people. 
That includes the majority of Democrats, it includes the majority of Republicans, and the majority of independents did not believe that they should get a lesser sentence. Um, in fact, there were more people, 32% uh, of people actually believed that uh, a, somebody who com committed a nonviolent crime and had a very high risk of reoffending should get a lower sentence before the person who committed a violent crime had a low risk of reoffending. Um, so this is one of those areas where, you know, this is actually working in places like Norway. You can go to places like Deray did in Germany where this is working, where this policy, um, they actually have lower rates of recidivism even though they have shorter sentences. So we know this works and yet this is where uh, there's going to be a lot of work to try to dismantle some of the biases and misconceptions um, that people have across the political spectrum that are preventing us from really making progress on this issue. And the last thing that I'll say is um, there are 162,000 people in this country right now serving a life sentence. 162,000 people in prison for the rest of their lives. Um, and that is just like a wild and obscene number to even think about. Like that is more than any other country. Like it makes up, I think it's 40% of the total number of people serving life sentences in the entire world. Um, and that's like up almost five times from what it was just over 30 years ago. Exactly. So that doesn't even have to be the American reality. Exactly. This was constructed through public policy, right? This is not an inevitability. This is something that politicians pass legislation intentionally to create these types of outcomes, um, and that's what we're dealing with. So it's going to be a lot of work to try to dismantle this piece of the criminal justice system in particular, but it needs to get done. I will say, um, what's interesting about the life census, I was at Angola, which is the single biggest landmass prison in the country. It's 18,000 acres, 28 square miles, and they have one of the highest percentages of people with life sentences in the country. And I'll never forget two programs they had there. One was a hospice program because so many people will just die at Angola. So they have a whole set of inmates who they run a program that like they will be with you when you take your last breath. They will put your body in a casket. They build the casket. They bury you. And you're like, and seeing that was just this wild thing. They also, on the complete other side, they have a fatherhood program, like a program for men who will be incarcerated for the rest of their lives and want to be good fathers, right? And like, you just see the toll. It's like, I don't know what a 120 year sentence does. Like, I don't know like what that actually does in terms of how we think about society and rehabilitation. So time out there, we are gonna invite uh, your DA, Larry Krasner, out to join us. Cool. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Here he comes. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. Great to see you. Yes. So this is our first time meeting. You know, I met him very briefly backstage. So this is new for both of us. So you already know him, uh, but he is your DA, ran on any cash bail, decriminalizing low-level offenses, reigning in police and prosecutorial misconduct. Let's get straight to the issues. We'll start with an issue I care about a lot, uh, which is about the police. You are prosecuting a police officer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I'd like to thank you all for dressing up this evening. <laughs> and you as well. Easy outfit, easy outfit. Um, we are, and the truth is that the DA's office has, to a much lesser extent, prosecuted officers from time to time, but there has not been a prosecution of a police officer who is alleged to have shot someone to death in the line of duty for 19 years and when there was that case was thrown out twice and never went to trial i can't get into the specifics because it is a pending matter but that is you are correct now 
you know, I'm in a lot of rooms, and what some people would say is that when the DAs prosecute police officers, it makes your relationship with the police department so untenable that, like, that's why a lot of DAs don't prosecute police. Is that, like, you need them in the other part of your work? How do you thread that line with, like, the commitment you've made to the public and seemingly needing the police so that you can do the other part of your work? Well, it's an interesting question. I think that's really just an excuse. I mean, honestly, I think what you're dealing with is DAs who want to run for some other office or who want to remain incumbent, so they pander to the police union in order to get reelected because often the unions have a lot of power. If there's no part of your oath to seek justice that says there's a particular group of people who get to hijack your sense of justice and who are not accountable. So I think that's basically a BS excuse. But there is no doubt that when you get into a culture, you take over an office where the culture has been, that there's a double standard and that police officers will not be held accountable, they're gonna take it a certain kind of way. And I don't mean that of all of them, I really don't. I actually think that we have a commissioner who's held a lot of police accountable in terms of his disciplinary powers, only to find out that he was undermined by the police union and undermined by arbitrators who put those officers straight back in the job. But if you're talking about the leadership of the police union, in Philadelphia, then you're talking about, frankly, a bunch of old school Archie Bunkers. Um, okay, according to a New York Times article in October, Philadelphia sentenced more juveniles to life without parole than any other city in the world. Why do you think that happened, and what can you do to reverse that trend? So this is actually one of the really fascinating stories about Pennsylvania and about Philadelphia, and I think it has far-reaching uh, implications, honestly. Pennsylvania had more juvenile lifers than any state in the United States, which meant more than any country in the world. And of all the cities, Philadelphia had more juveniles sentenced to life or death for a homicide than any other place in the world. And so what has happened is because of various Supreme Court rulings, first they said, mm, no, we can't kill kids. And then they said, mm, no, we can't just give them sentences of life without parole. We need to resentence all of them, right? So that has been going on for a while. The last administration resentenced about half. We are closing in on resentencing the other half. And here's why I think it is so important. How did we get there? We got there because Pennsylvania law is insane. We have a, a set of laws that gave us an 800% increase in, in incarceration while the rest of the country was uh, satisfied with a psychotic 500%, right? We have, I think, one of only four states in the United States where if you are the juvenile who went along with somebody else on a robbery and that somebody else shot somebody, then you're going to do life without any possibility of parole too. I mean, I could go on and on, but the, the statutes in Pennsylvania are nuts, and that's why we have such a mess here. So that is part of how we got there. Needless to say, there's a whole political side to it, which is reflected in the fact that many of our former DAs went on to be U.S. senators and mayors and governors and so on, and, and there's a lot of political capital in stepping on people, so that is what they did. But the point I want to make, if I ever get there... <laughs> we listening, Larry. We listening. All right. The point I want to make is that there have at this point been almost 140, hope my number's right, people who were sentenced to either death or life without the possibility of parole in Pennsylvania who are now released. These are people who were determined to be 
determined to be such monsters that they should be executed or they should die in jail. They should leave jail in a coffin. That is who they are. And they have been on the street now, some of them for two years, some of them for one year, some of them for a week. And what we are seeing in terms of recidivism, unless I'm off, I think this is accurate. I spoke to the head of the parole board about this. We had two of them out of approximately 140 who seemed to be developing drug issues and were sent to treatment. We had one who was arrested for a case involving, fairly serious case, involving possession of a gun and some amount of drugs. He would, that case was actually thrown out, but let's just assume he was guilty as could be. And then there was one other person who has a domestic violence case, and that's it. Out of 140 people who have been out of custody an average of 13, 14 months, we have four. We have no convictions. We have only one case that even smacks of the possibility of being a violent crime. That's what we got. So that is where we start to see this grand experiment of what does it mean when you take people who were supposedly unthinkable monsters and you let them out 20 years later or 25 years later or 15 years later. Now on the pod recently, we've covered the issue of opioid overdoses in jail. Is there anything that your office can do about like the conditions of jails in the city? What we're seeing more than that particular issue is we are seeing that the possibility of dying of a fatal overdose for someone who is suffering from addiction and goes into jail for a week or a month or six months, the chance that they'll die at that o of that overdose goes up over a thousand percent as opposed to if they had never gone into that jail cell. And the reason, as I'm sure you can figure out, is their tolerance goes away in jail and then they come out still suffering from the addiction, go and get the same dose that they could have easily survived previously, and it kills them. It, you know, this is the counterpart to the usual approach that we can only help people by locking them up. That is not actually helping people to have them die as a consequence of being in jail for a week. And what about marijuana? So as I look around the room, <laughs> I noticed some people who are drinking something far more poisonous than marijuana. <laughs> I think that their kidneys and livers would be better off if they would switch to marijuana, personally. <laughs> and uh, as you may know, the, the relatively small number of marijuana possession cases that were still being prosecuted when you know, our group came into office are no longer prosecuted because it just doesn't make sense for about 206 different reasons. Now, we spend a lot of our time in the criminal justice space and we're always dealing with these like misconceptions that people have about mass incarceration or policing. We talked today about ICE. Is, are there any things that you wish people just understood better about either the work that your office does about criminal justice, are there any of those things that you wanna help us like tighten up our understanding on? Well, you know, I, th I could get into the details, but I really think the most important thing that people may not understand is that the battle for criminal justice reform is ultimately gonna be won or lost over how the story of criminal justice reform is told. We have gone through more than a century of a type of thinking and journalism about criminal justice 
that is completely different than the way we think about medicine. It is essentially Grimm's fairy tales. It's essentially, although it's truer than Grimm's fairy tales, but it's essentially really scary stories about terrible things. It's the true story of Ted Bundy, for example, right? And it's the kind of thing that I even remember from my, my teen years being sort of a, a fascination because it is so horrifying. It's also completely atypical and in no way reflects the reality of what's going on in criminal justice. And so we have had journalism making tons of money, entertainment making tons of money off of pushing a particular narrative that is true in the sense that it tells particular terrible stories, but completely untrue in the sense that it tricks everybody into thinking that that's reality. That is how you get to the point where for 30 years crime is going down and for 30 years 65% of the population believes crime is going up. That's how you get there. So we, we can either, you know, we can either go with the flat earth society or we can, a we can actually do what they did in medicine, which is called science. It's, ca <laughs> it's called evidence. It's called data. Stuff like that. We could do that. The, in order for us to get there, though, it will take a fundamental change in how we think of it. And I actually, I believe that the situation of the juvenile lifers has real potential to make people look at this differently. Now, how do you work with and listen to people in communities that are most affected by these issues to actually craft your policies and like set a vision for the city? So I was fortunate enough to, uh, you know, represent a lot of activists back in the day before I was considered acceptable to voters. You know, and so those connections are real. They go back a long way. I, I represented them because I really appreciated who they were and what they were trying to do. And as you might imagine, in the poorest of the 10 largest cities, our activists are no joke. They are people who are natural leaders. They're incredibly persuasive and verbal, and they can get a hell of a lot done. And many of them, of course, are now, you know, the chief of staff for a city council person. One of them became secretary of labor. A lot of them have their circles of influence that are very real, whether they have titles or not. I work with those people. Some of them have worked in a group called the Coalition for a Just DA. Uh, others I deal with individually on particular types of cases. And since I really do view this as a movement, and I really do view myself as nothing but a technician for that movement, I mean, they, the truth is that they have to lead the way. What they need from people like me and our policy team and our criminologists is they need to have the mechanical know-how so that we can get these kinds of things done. What do you, what can you say for people who live in Philadelphia, who hear you right now and are like, I am ready to do something. What's your advice to those people? I don't know if you, do you have a volunteer program in the DA's office? I don't know what that looks like. Uh, well, if you have a law degree, feel free to apply, first of all. In terms of people who do not have a law degree, first of all, good for you. <laughs> Lawyers are rotten people. Uh, but second, we do in fact have uh, a lot of volunteer opportunities in the office in terms of working with victims, working in the community. We have a community outreach team and we would be delighted to have you contact us about that. And I'd be delighted to have you join us in our little movement. And, and what do you say to people? There's some people, and this has come up when people have talked about Kamala, people who've been prosecutors, that a progressive prosecutor is like an oxymoron. They're like, part of what you do is like put people in jail. And they, there's hard to think about that as progressive. So what do you say to those people who are like, it's good that a good person's in the space, but the space is sort of like a, 
challenged space when we think about what progressive really is. See, now you're really asking me for me to have fun. <laughs> People so, say it. I, I'm curious about you. No, they do, they do say it. And, you know, as we went all over the country recruiting this year, it was kind of the topic of conversation because there are a lot of wonderful idealistic law students who say, I'm going to be a public defender. And they're saying that because they have an idea of what a prosecutor is, which is an old school prosecutor, and they could never be that, right? So the reason we had to go around the country instead of just saying who wants to apply is that most law students don't understand what it means to even say progressive prosecutor. And so I would go to these different law schools and we would talk to them and pretty quickly the conversation turned into this. They would say, I could never do that. I could never put someone in jail. I could never do that. Which is a really interesting statement because you keep hearing the word I over and over. Well, isn't a public defender, which I used to be, I was a public defender for five years, isn't a public defender supposed to serve their client? Isn't that the point of saying that your job is virtuous? The virtue is not about your lifestyle. The virtue is about who you serve. So compare that then to the situation of a criminal defendant sitting in a courtroom. And he can have public defender virtue walk up to the old school prosecutor, let's just say, oh, Jeff Sessions, someone like that, and then they can have a discussion about justice in which those two are never gonna see eye to eye because as you know, Mr. Sessions is a special kind of guy, right? <laughs> or we could have the situation where the public defender goes up to talk to a prosecutor who's kind of sees the world in a similar way as the public defender. Which situation would you want if you were the defendant? I would suggest respectfully that that defendant is not looking for a friend in the public defender. He certainly isn't looking to hear, I could never send someone to jail. He is looking for a fair result in that courtroom. And the person this public defender serves is better served by having a prosecutor and a public defender who are, have heard of things like history. And <laughs> you know, they've heard of uh, racism and they've heard of mass incarceration and they actually think that mass incarceration is a bad thing. So, you know, that's kind of where I come down. Do you want virtue? Do you want to be the coolest kid at the party or do you want victory? Do you want to actually change society, make things better for the people that you could have served as a public defender? Because if you want victory, you better go take the levers of power. Otherwise, all you get is virtue. I like that. Is there anything the Trump administration is doing that is having an impact on the work you do? Or is the DOJ sort of so far removed from your day-to-day? -day? No, there, there definitely is something going on. And I am proud to say I've been called out now by Rosenstein Sessions and our local U.S. attorneys, so we must be doing something admirable. But, you know, just one example, and more specifically, Philadelphians who are trying to set up a supervised injection site, or what I would call a harm reduction center, yes. just got sued. And this is the only lawsuit, the first lawsuit in the United States of America by the Department of Justice, by the federal administration against people who are considering setting up a supervised injection site. Essentially, they're trying to ask a federal judge in Philly to say, you cannot do this that it's a violation of federal law, so don't do it. It's a precursor, should the judge say that, and then they go ahead and set it up anyway to probably swooping in and bringing federal criminal charges against the 
let me see, idealistic medical students, idealistic doctors, and other idealistic people who don't want us to have four deaths a day from our opioid epidemic. So that is, that is certainly having an impact. Now, I'm not directly involved, other than I've been very clear I would not prosecute a group of people who are trying to stop people from dying in this fashion, which I think is really not a complicated notion. But that's about it. <laughs> if you could recreate the criminal justice system from scratch, what would, what would it look like? <laughs> Small question, but I have you here, so I thought I'd ask. We are trying. Uh, rather than what we have seen in the last you know, 50 years, which is a systematic effort to destroy the juvenile justice system and move all of those kids into a retributive adult system, we should be going the other direction. We should be systematically destroying the adult system and moving towards a model where what you're trying to do as much as possible is to rehabilitate and to do individual justice in each case for the victims, for the defendants, and frankly, for society as a whole. Because every decision we make Everyone we make about spending money to put someone in jail or for some better purpose like treatment is a decision about how many dollars are going to go into a public school classroom. And in case you hadn't noticed, uh, they have been protesting quite recently in L.A. because the number was over 40 students in a classroom. I came out of public school with about 22 in a classroom and I came out of a great public school. There is absolutely no reason why we should be having this money fire when we could be having actual bona fide public schools that prevent crime much better than, than this. There are a lot of people who like have been to every rally, they protested, they've called, they've emailed, they've done all the things, and they would say the outcomes haven't changed the way they thought they were gonna change. What do you say to those people? Uh, I actually think our situation is incredibly hopeful. I mean, even if you just look at criminal justice reform, first of all, what kind of crazy world are we in where it's actually a major issue in a presidential election? I mean, how amazing is that? <laughs> Second, the midterms. Third, I mean, we're getting to the point where even the people who love Trump hate Trump, you know? I mean, we're getting and to- Coulter. We're, we are getting to a good point. I actually think that, you know, the picture is incredibly hopeful when you pick up the paper and Rachel Rollins just got elected DA in Boston, a very, very progressive candidate. <laughs> Wesley Bell. Wesley in, Bell yeah, in, in your Louis old County. stomping grounds in there. St. Louis County, yep. In St. Louis County, and I could go on and on, but it is actually happening all over the country. It really is a movement, and it's happening in places where people don't think it would. Your despair should be seen another way which is that you are a part of a very large number of people who know how to go into a voting booth who are disgusted with the way things are. All you got to do is go in that voting booth and they will, they will actually change. Boom. Awesome. Let's give it up for Larry Krasner. Thank you. You're the man. Thank y'all for coming. Woo, 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 woo.